Section 22 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11. A Year of Disappointment, Part 1. The affairs of the Great Alliance had given Marlborough many opportunities of showing his talents as a diplomatist. In the beginning of 1707, a new call was made upon him. Since 1700, the northern nations of Europe had been engaged in a war for supremacy, which at length threatened to influence the general course of affairs in Europe. The ability of Gustavus Adolphus had made Sweden the chief nation of the north. She now owned Livonia, Estonia, and most of the territory round the Baltic, and her power was watched with jealous anxiety by her neighbours. When in 1697 Charles Twelfth came to the throne at the age of fifteen, it was thought that there was a good chance of stripping Sweden of some of her provinces during the minority of her king. Charles Twelfth was famous for his mad pranks and his wild hunting feats. Little was to be expected from him as a ruler. Peter the Great was then Tsar of Russia, his aim was to make Russia a European and a maritime power, though when he came to the throne he possessed no port in his dominions but Archangel. He wished to wrest the provinces of Estonia and Kurland from Sweden, and made a secret league with Augustus, king of Saxony and Poland, and the king of Denmark, against Sweden. The Swedes were terrified, and the council recommended conciliatory measures in the face of so many enemies— but Charles Twelfth, who had hitherto taken no interest in state affairs, exclaimed passionately, I am resolved never to begin an unjust war, nor to finish a just one, except by the destruction of my enemies. Immediate preparations were made to meet the attacks of his foes, and one by one they were defeated before they had time to combine. Charles Twelfth showed himself a born soldier. In an age when rulers and generals surrounded themselves with ridiculous etiquette and wasted their money on their own personal luxuries, he lived the simple, frugal life of a common soldier and shared all the privations of his men. Whilst he endeared himself to them in this way, he was strict and severe as a commander and enforced the most rigid discipline in his camp. Prayers were always offered up twice a day, and on the field of battle— no soldier durst leave his ranks or spoil the dead till permission was given. But Charles Twelfth was more of a knight-errant than a statesman or a general. He could fight well and make his men fight well, but he did not know how to take such measures as would make his kingdom prosperous, nor how to plan his campaigns with wise forethought so as to lead to the final overthrow of his enemies. He was no match for Peter the Great, who had a distinct object in view, which he pursued steadily in spite of all obstacles. Charles Twelfth did not realize that Peter was his one really formidable enemy. He was content with entirely defeating the Russian army at Narva in 1700, and instead of pursuing his advantage, turned aside to crush King Augustus of Poland. He spent years in Poland, fighting with Augustus, and setting up a new king, Stanislav, in his stead, whilst Peter was organizing his armies and laying the foundations of his new capital on Swedish soil. 
At last, in 1706, Charles XII followed Augustus into Saxony and established his camp at Altranstadt near Leipzig. All eyes in Europe were turned upon the northern hero, who before he was twenty years old had waged successful war against so many enemies. Louis XIV ventured to hope that he might win him over to fight on his side against the Allies. French envoys were sent to the Swedish camp with flattering tales to please the vanity of the young king, and it did not seem as if it would be difficult to gain him over, for he already had many grievances against Austria, and was fired with ambition to become like his ancestor Gustavus Adolphus, the arbiter of the destinies of Europe. Marlborough saw the danger, and employed a Prussian, General Grumbkow, to discover the sentiments of Charles Twelfth. Grumbkow wrote to Marlborough in an interesting account of his doings at Altranstadt. He dwelt particularly on the wretched fare provided at the tables of the king and his chief minister, Count Piper, and was struck by the way in which they swallowed their food in haste and silence. He said, The Swedes in general are modest, but do not scruple to declare themselves invincible when the king is at their head. Charles XII expressed a great wish to see Marlborough, and the allies, who were terrified lest he should conclude an alliance with France, urged Marlborough to visit him in person. He started for the continent in April 1707, and after settling matters at The Hague, continued his journey to Saxony, visiting Hanover and the electoral family on the way. On his first introduction to Charles XII, he greeted him with most flattering words. Had not her sex prevented it, he said, the queen my mistress would have crossed the sea to see a prince admired by the whole universe. I am in this particular more happy than the queen, and I wish I could serve some campaigns under so great a general as your majesty, that I might learn what I yet want to know in the art of war. Marlborough stayed two days at Altranstadt and had several interviews with the king and his principal ministers and generals. His ready tongue and flattering words produced a great effect upon Charles Twelfth, whilst he himself was much struck by the force and simplicity of the young king. They discussed at length the affairs of Europe and the grievances of Charles Twelfth against Austria, and Marlborough succeeded in disposing the king favorably towards the interests of the Grand Alliance. To make matters doubly sure, he gave pensions in the Queen's name to Count Piper and other leading Swedes, most of whom were already in receipt of French gold, but doubtless felt no hesitation in taking all they could get. Louis the Fourteenth kept his paid agents and spies at every court in Europe, and few statesmen in those days were above taking a bribe. Marlborough saw at the Swedish camp Stanislav, the newly made King of Poland, and visited Augustus, Elector of Saxony, the dethroned king at Leipzig, and had to use all his tact not to compromise himself or his government with these rival monarchs. Before returning, he paid a visit to the king of Prussia to keep Frederick in good temper. This journey, he writes to his wife, has given me the advantage of seeing four kings, three of whom I had never seen. They seem to be all very different in their kinds. If I was obliged to make a choice, it should be the youngest, which is the king of Sweden. When Charles Twelfth felt that he had settled affairs in Germany to his satisfaction, 
he turned against his last remaining foe, Peter the Great. Peter had spent the interval in strengthening himself to meet Charles, and Charles the Twelfth, brave soldier though he was, proved no match for Peter. He penetrated into Russia, but his campaign was ill-planned, and in the Battle of Pultava, 1709, his veteran army was destroyed, the power of Peter was established, whilst Sweden lost its external dominions and shrunk back once more into its former limits. Marlborough went back to The Hague, having spent only eighteen days on his journey, a marvellously short time in those days of difficult travelling. Bad news greeted him on his return. A great battle had been fought in Spain at Almanza on April 25th, and the forces of the Allies had been completely defeated by the French under the Duke of Berwick. Lord Galway, the English general, wrote that he looked upon the affairs of Spain as completely lost by this disaster. The Allies were driven back from all the country which they had conquered, and could only with difficulty maintain themselves in Catalonia. In Germany, too, the Allies met with severe reverse. The Margrave of Baden had died in the beginning of the year. He was a learned, if not a brilliant general, and had with care and skill fortified and maintained the lines of Stolhofen as a barrier between France and Baden. His successor as general of the German army, the Margrave of Bayreuth, who had been chosen more for his rank than for his ability, suffered Villars to break through the lines on May 22nd and penetrate as far as Hochstadt, laying waste the country on his way. In all these misfortunes, appeal was at once made to Marlborough. He succeeded in getting the Elector of Hanover made general of the German army instead of the Margrave of Bayreuth, and he planned an enterprise against Toulon, the French port in Provence, which might cause a diversion of the French forces favourable to the affairs of the Allies in Spain. Prince Eugène and the Duke of Savoy were to lead an army over the Alps to Toulon, which was at the same time to be attacked by an English fleet. The French possessed there immense magazines and stores, and the fortifications had been allowed to fall into dilapidation, so that Marlborough hoped it would be an easy prize, and that its capture would strike a blow at the French power which might bring the war to a speedy end. It was not easy to persuade the emperor to agree to this enterprise against Toulon. He cared little for the general cause of the Allies, and was only anxious, in the tangled state of affairs, to secure his own safety and get as much for himself as he could. The subjugation of Naples was now the aim of his ambition. That he might accomplish this, he refused reinforcements to his brother Charles in Spain, and only after much persuasion allowed a portion of his army under Eugène to join in the attack on Toulon. He did not refuse entirely the demands of England and Holland, but he delayed the departure of the expedition, and meanwhile Louis the Fourteenth found out what was going on. He sent Marshal Tessay to defend Toulon, who found that there was much to be done, for Toulon was not a fortress, but rather a garden. It was surrounded with large country houses, orchards, and convents, all of which had to be destroyed, and 4,000 peasants with the sailors from the fleet were employed night and day in erecting the necessary fortifications. They toiled so hard 
that the works were already far advanced when Prince Eugène and the Duke of Savoy came in sight on the 26th of July. Still the Allied troops were in good spirits, and encouraged by the appearance of the English fleet at the mouth of the harbour, were eager to attack the town. Unfortunately, there was much jealousy between Prince Eugène and the Duke of Savoy. It looks as if the Duke had only been half-hearted in the scheme. They could not agree upon prompt measures, and the troops were disappointed by hearing that instead of trying to take the town by assault, they were to resort to the wearisome alternative of a siege. All the wasted time was made good use of by the French, and Marshal Tessé's army was daily reinforced. The Allies suffered from sickness and want of supplies, and at last their position became so hopeless that there remained nothing for them but retreat. Fortunately, they were not pursued by the French, and Prince Eugène, on his way back, succeeded in taking Sousa, which secured the approach to Turin. End of section 22